Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda danny abdel jabbar what's up man yo 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 indeed um guys you're listening to a celebrity a local new york city celebrity not myself not myself but it was halloween the other day as you guys know Mm -hmm. and um danny was featured on new york one for his little costume my little costume. She was phenomenal. <laughs> I say little costume because usually it's 10-year-olds who are dressed up for Halloween. But <laughs> Well, I'm still a 10-year-old boy in my heart, so, you know, whatever. I'm still a kid in heart. Yay. Yeah, you. Nah, dude, it was, it was really cool, man. Uh, this um, so, so for those of you who don't know, I, I am the self-proclaimed king of Halloween. I, I really, really like Halloween. It's, it's just, you know, the one day that I get to let my freak flag fly. Um and, uh, you know, if you're super curious about it, just Google my name. You'll find pictures of, of my costume all over it. Um, or you'll, you'll see find my pictures Instagram of all my, like that. Free, my freaky deaky costumes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I like I spend a lot of time and a lot of effort in it. It's something that I quite enjoy. And, it you know, it's once a year, so it's not that big a deal. But spoiler um, alert, Danny was a, uh, a furry. I was not a furry. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's not a Halloween costume for you. That's an everyday thing, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. For, only from the, the waist down, though. Um, so uh, this year I was in Android, uh, or just like some futurist human Android cyborg robot thing. Were you um, a like Dragon Ball Z anime Android? Uh, no, uh, but I'd forgive you for saying that. I got a lot of um, people saying that I was like Borg from Star Trek, which I I don't know what that is. Um, and uh, what was the other RoboCop? I got RoboCop a lot. Um, I guess those are totally acceptable because you know I'm, it, the thing about Halloween is that like everyone ex- expects you to be like a character that they know right and the question they always ask you is like what are you oh my god I love your costume and I'm like just whatever you want me to be do you like it or not <laughs> um, do you like the effort I put into my my costume right but you know it was cool so this was the first year that I actually got a chance to walk in the Halloween parade um, and you know for those of you who aren't from New York City New York City's like uh, Halloween parade is massive, right? And anyone who's in costume can walk in it. I really like that idea. I think it's super cool. There was a lot of really awesome costumes. There were these giant like puppets of like skeleton things dancing. There was like uh, uh, you know bands and stuff like that. You know like uh, marching bands. Uh, there was a really good paper mache Bernie Bernie Sanders <laughs> uh, that I thought was fucking awesome, uh, and like a whole pack of uh, Elizabeth Warrens. So you know, like this year's political costumes were on fleek, uh, to say the least. Um, but yeah, it was it was awesome. I had a lot a really good time, and while I was walking in the parade, like some guy from uh, New York, one one of their uh, um, 
uh, I guess one of their production assistants like pulled me aside. It's like, hey, can we interview you? Like really awesome costume, whatever. And uh, one of our friends from a company that we used to work with, whose name I won't dox, uh, she actually saw us um, on TV, me and my girlfriend, and uh, you know took a snap of it and um, you know sent it over to me, and and uh, now it's on my Instagram. So yeah, famous. Who wears a Elizabeth Warren costume? <laughs> Was it Pocahontas? No, no, it wasn't Pocahontas themed. <laughs> no, they were all wearing like this red pantsuit, um, and it was like maybe six women and one black guy, <laughs> and they were all wearing like these blonde wigs and shit. And it was actually really funny. Uh, they had some like signs or posters of like I guess shit that Elizabeth Warren says. I didn't really read them. I was just like dying about the fact that there was like a whole brigade of Elizabeth Warrens. I thought it was funny. Sounds like a nightmare for many people in our audience. <laughs> well, you know, it is Halloween, right? <laughs> it, it is Halloween. <laughs> I, I'm surprised. Um, a lot of people now, I mean, we live in New York, so um, if you think where you live is politically c- correct, then just come to New York. It is <laughs> pretty politically correct. But then again, it's also not at the same time. There's certain areas, like where you live down in Brooklyn, that's way more politically correct, like where i live and yeah i mean town. It, we're, we're we're kind of like an inclusive society in bushwick you know <laughs> um which i actually really like um it's it's refreshing not to you know not to uh you know worry about getting called you know like racist epithets or something like that you know that's that's nice um it it gets a little annoying sometimes but you know i i prefer it this way anyway but that's just me being a typical liberal, I guess. Where, where, in New, where in New York, or let alone this country, are you going to be called a racial slur? Dude, I am both Puerto Rican and Palestinian, and I get the worst of both of it. So there's that. What do you get more? You definitely get more Arab bang it passion, right? It really just depends. You know, like people see in me whatever they want to see, right? So uh, white people think I'm maybe white, but probably not um you know spanish people think i'm not spanish um uh arab people think i'm arab but i look off you know so like everybody kind of likes me but what also kind of arab doesn't trust you? me you know it's like yeah where are you from where no but where are your parents from you know like i get that question a lot and uh yeah i mean just my la- by virtue of my last name like I, I get stopped every now and again on airplanes and shit like that so like going through tsa is not a fun thing for me you know um but yeah you know, everyone has their, their, you know, stories. Everyone has their cross to bear. All right. So let's just get right into it and, and, uh, forego the rest of the subtleties because we could have some chit chat all day. However, so we're, we're hitting a topic that we don't usually touch that much. So, um, you got to bear with us right now, but I mean, everyone who listens to this show on a frequent basis knows that we you know our MO has really become the Middle East over the past um, year or so. Right. Never really intended for that to happen. It just kind of worked out that way. It, it just it just kind of worked out that way that we ended up doing most of our commentary on the Middle East. Most of the history stuff that we do is on the Middle East. And um, we, you know, whenever we kind of pivot somewhere else into another direction, it always takes kind of a, a you know a bit of uh, catching up to do in a lot of stories, a lot of um, a lot of history, a lot of, a lot of history, and it's not like that we don't follow these stories. We're, we're, spoiler alert: we're talking about Ukraine today. Um, it's not that we don't follow these stories; it's just that you know, Danny and I are reading about the Middle East pretty much every single day. Um, 
we're, we're following stories from the Middle East almost every single day. And right. when something happens or when something happens in Ukraine or something happens in China or something China, happens in, in North Latin, Korea or something like North that. Korea, yeah. North Asia is probably our second. You know, we follow North. We, we follow China pretty well. <clears throat> China. We, we felt China pretty well, uh, though we haven't done an episode on China in a while. But when we hit Ukraine, uh, you know, anything that's going on in Eastern Europe, we typically avoid things that are too domestic, that are not directly involved in foreign policy. Um, and this is something that is kind of uh, um, it's kind of filtered in or kind of sunk into to domestic policy in a lot of ways. And it's a mainstream issue right now as far as. What's being reported on MSNBC? I mean, Jesus, there's a potential impeachment inquiry, or there is an impeachment inquiry. There's a what potential am I saying? impeachment, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't. I mean, we we comment on it, but we don't make the emphasis on their show on on this type of stuff. So we're gonna try to kind of we're gonna take a crack at it. We're gonna take a crack at it, and and hopefully, the context that we've put out in other episodes, I think, kind of relates to the context here when we speak about Ukraine, because um, let's. Let's just do a quick recap for anyone who's just is not interested in politics or not really following. living under a rock or something living like under that. <laughs> living under a rock or whatever. I don't blame him at this point because, you know, I put my head under. I mean, I'm somebody who d- did not really follow Russiagate at all. And um, with Ukraine gate, I was about to put my head under the sand again. Um, and but then I coaxed you into it. <laughs> then you coaxed, you coaxed, you coaxed me into it. But I think it's a good opportunity to talk about some history, right? So, what is going on in Ukraine? What's not in Ukraine? What's going on with impeachment stuff? What's going on with Ukraine? Well, just give the long story short, and let's just build off that. Yep. So TLDR: um, the U.S. as well as many other countries, but specifically the U.S. for this impeachment inquiry. Um, support Ukraine with aid, uh, much more specifically military aid. Um, there is, uh, you know, Ukraine's been going through some shit, and we'll definitely talk about the history there. Um, but specifically, there's uh, a lot of corruption that happens in Ukraine. Um, not to spoil the beans, but there's a report that I read that puts them at like number two for like most corrupt country in Europe or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there was this call uh, not too long ago uh, with Trump and uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky, uh, where they discussed some things. Uh, and uh, it appears, at least the inquiry is looking into, uh, the idea that Trump withheld military aid to Ukraine uh, on the premise and, you know, on, you know, with with the express intent to get uh, some kind of information from Zelensky, and that information was related to both the 2016 election and Russiagate and how that got started, as well as uh, some uh, uh, allegations of Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, uh, you know, having escaped some justice. Uh, And, uh, you know, the implications here are, you know, whether or not um, there was wrongdoing there, uh, whether or not Trump tried to uh, extort, you know, Ukraine with this money uh, that was appropriated by Congress um, to try to get political dirt, frankly. Uh, and that's that's where we're at right now. That's, the, I think, the shortest possible way to talk about it. It's just the open question about whether or not Trump did something wrong on this call. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a pretty good synopsis of what's going on, at least domestically or, you know, the way that 
the, the way that most people are kind of um, covering the story. Now, the thing with Ukraine is that there's definitely an a, a embarrassing gap in history when it comes to anything related to Ukraine. And um, I have an interesting story, some backstory for you. So my grandfather is from Ukraine. Mm, I thought so, you were Polish. I am Polish, but they were Poles that who were living in Ukraine. Ah, I mean, okay. they were from they were from his family's from Poland, but they moved to Ukraine, and you know, it, it's you know, it's, it's Europeans not get that around, far away. It. It's yeah. not that far away. <laughs> Europeans yeah. get around. Yeah. But my grandfather, um, his name was also is Henrik Zamoda. Henrik. If you want to look mm-hmm. him up. They came from a very, very wealthy family, um, a very wealthy Polish family. They lived in Ukraine. Their, like, big estate was in Ukraine. And, I mean, Ukraine's a nice place, scenically. And they actually were victims of the Bolshevik Revolution. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's funny because when I was younger, um, there's a New York City writing contest called Stories My Grandparents Told Me, and I won the prize. Oh, nice. Um, f- for writing this story about my grandfather having all of his assets. Well, he was like very young. He was like nine years old. My grandfather was super old when he had my, my father, but um, he lived through that. But he was, uh, he was like nine or 10 years old. And what happened is that the, Soviet, the Bolshevik Party started seizing assets. And in a lot of cases, they were killing people with money. They were throwing them up against a firing squad or deported them to Siberia or, or really just any a lot of nasty things. And my grandfather, who was living in Ukraine, they had to actually um, they had to escape. So all of their assets, their their state was taken by the Bolsheviks, and they also had to um, they had to hide and get smuggled out of the country. And they were they were um, dressed like peasants, so they had to dress up like peasants. So they had to throw all their you know their their fancy schmancy garb away, and they had to wear like you know whatever the common man man wore. And they, they were eventually smuggled out, and they made their way. They found their way to to France, where my grandfather actually uh, spent the majority of his life. That's super interesting. It is a very interesting story. However, <clears throat> I want to talk about. Ukraine because it's just been a geopolitical stage for the past century and this is a place where millions of people have died during World War One and World War Two and even prior to World War Two you know you had um, uh, Lazar Kaganovich who was one of Stalin's main cronies going to the Ukraine and start enforcing collectivized farming which was like one of the most disgraceful and dumbest policies that that really ever existed in the 20th century. Um, to, to make a long story short, millions of t- tens of millions of people starved to death in the Ukraine during during um, in the 1930s, and it's just been a place where where it, with so much despair, like you know, hundreds of thousands of people were shot, hundreds of thousands of people were exiled to Siberia. And I completely understand why Ukrainians may have some type of resentment towards Russian people because they were abused. And, and we've talked about this in other, other episodes If you know, people who have been historically abused or ethnic groups that have been historically abused. You know, you have Jews, you have Kurds, you have Ukrainians. And 
but in like in in like the the past century who have just been brutally exterminated by the millions you know those the, the groups that I, I always think of are ukrainians and jews um but well look the bolsheviks are coming after me because i spoke poorly of them but there's so much hostility towards russia nowadays and there's so much hostility towards russia nowadays and and i think people need to understand is that you know the russian government right now as faulty and as corrupt and as authoritarian as it is and and believe me like the russian government's not a good government all governments are bad but the russian government's pretty bad i think most people can agree with that and by by no means am i apologist for it but they're definitely not as pathological as the soviet union and i think there's a lot of comparisons now uh, that were made over the past you know over the events of the past five years um you know really since 2014 or if you want to peel that all the way back to 2009 where russia is this is this almost this new hitler or new uh german germany and, and that's trying to annex all this territory and start and trying to make a greater russia and they're trying to make these comparisons or or they they compare him to joseph stalin who's one of the worst dictators of all time and as much as a criminal as putin is he's not a stalin he's not a stalin at all um what is important to understand and and you know we've talked about this in other episodes when we go through like Sykes Pico and and how different countries were created artificially, um, you, Ukraine is just like a Middle Eastern country or an African country. There's really no logical borders, and the the problem is is that when these borders are drawn, and this goes for all these artificial states, they're not drawn on they're they're, they're drawn based on the interests of the people who who draw the actual borders they're not based on the autonomy of the people who actually live there and what's interesting about ukraine is that ukraine is the third largest language in the country so third number the third largest language in the country is ukrainian number one is russia that doesn't sound right but that's crazy no that's it's it's what it is what it is that's crazy and, you know, number one is Russia and number two is, is Russia. Number one is Russian and number two is English. And the reason for that is really sad in itself. Hey, um, this is Ukraine. Speak Russian. <laughs> no, but the, the reason the reason the reason why it's it's not the largest language there is it's it's there's a reason for it. Um, let's so the Holdemore. Uh, most people probably know that you libertarians use this as a case study for collectivization all the time, but it, it was it was one of the great famines in in modern history, and um, it, it was it was in Ukraine and also Crimea, and millions of people starved to death. People were eating each other. Like wait, they're literally eating each other. People were literally eating each other. Jesus Christ. That's what happens with with collectivized farming because here's the big problem with collectivized farming. When you take farming, so farming and agriculture is an, is an ancient practice. It's an ancient trade. It takes generations to build the skills to farm. It's not something that you can just do. That's why there's there's colleges for agriculture studies. There's universities for agriculture studies. I don't know, man. I grew a tomato plant once, and it was pretty good. 
just because you you, you grow <laughs> i know you're joking but yeah. just because you can grow a pot leaf in your backyard <laughs> does not mean that you have the ability to produce agriculture at a surplus that can feed people it's an incredibly hard thing and there's so many different aspects that go into it and i'm no obviously no expert and i'm a new yorker so i obviously don't know the first thing about farming but what i do know is that it's pretty hard to do it and it takes a lot of skill and when you take farm land when you when you when you seize farmland and you give it to somebody else that's not skilled at farming then it's gonna it, it's gonna be a disaster in the long run because they're not gonna be able to produce the same amount of food. They're not gonna be able to produce pr- produce food at a at a at a surplus, which is the most important thing. Is how you keep your country from not starving to death. I mean, the reason why the United States doesn't starve to death is because we produce food at a surplus. We we produce so much food that we're able to ship out food for free for aid. So, it, so we have we have this collectivized farming, right? And it wasn't producing a surplus uh, during the Holdemore, right? Um, and then people are literally starving and eating each other. That's that's I, where we're at there here. Is, there is during the Holdemore, the, the the Soviets had signs saying it's immoral to eat your children, like signs oh like God. that. It, it was just a total total disaster. And um, the Ukrainian people definitely deserve uh, sympathy for that. And during that time period as well, the Ukrainian language was banned more times than you account. It's it you wouldn't even be able to look up and find every single instance where the the Ukrainian language was 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 banned, and that's because there was a policy within the Soviet Union to, you know, de-Ukrainianize or you know however you want to phrase it, but uh, really take that that the, the the culture aspects out of Ukraine and outlaw them because you know they were uppity at sometimes and that's what usually happens when you have an uppity ethnic group they they try to suppress it and they try to force assimilation sounds like the really, Kurds unfortunately it, it, it sounds it sounds like the Kurds as well and you know we've obviously had our debates on that and uh, it kind of sounds like I'm agreeing with you based off this art based off what I'm saying right now on on you know it's nuanced, Kurds, but it it's, it's, it's yeah, it's it's nuanced. But without a doubt, it's 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 a, a country that's had immense suffering um, over the past one hundred years. Just an immense amount of suffer suffering. And what you really ended up with is is two a country that's been, I guess, the easiest way to say it's it's been split in in half. There's the west side which is the Ukrainian side where people speak Ukrainian and then there's the Russian speaking side, which is the East. So the side that speaks Ukrainian is closer to, you know, Western countries and the Eastern side is more Russian speaking and they identify as Russian and there's more favor with Russia. Does that make sense? Totally. So I think one of the big, now this is where things get complicated or I mean, this is where the news starts becoming more and more negligent. I guess I, that, that's a better word to say. Um, you know, during, if you guys can remember in 2014, what was the big story with Russia and Ukraine? What Crimea. was the big story? Crimea. Mm-hmm. Crimea was the big story with Russia and Ukraine. And what was the narrative that you heard? If I can remember correctly, um, Russia 
uh, is an asshole and decided to take a whole country. And so they fudged an election there and uh, annexed it and just took it. And the reason why they wanted it was because they wanted access to the to the sea. Okay, well, that's probably a little bit better than than the majority of people who are watching the news. (laughs) Sorry, I I look into shit like that, though. So (laughs) I know you, you actually look into that. But for the average for the average person who's just who's just watching the news and looking what's going on with Ukraine and Russia, they're just like, "Oh, Russia just conquered Ukraine." That was kind of, that was a narrative for most people. And what's funny, side note. So I was at uh you ever go to one of those Bulgarian shot bars? No. What is that? A Bulgarian shot bar is is it was a Groupon. And my friends and I, we mm-hmm. got this group these Groupons where you went to a Bulgarian shot bar. And I guess the place, I guess the place was actually ran by Ukrainians and you, it was no Bulgarian ice bar. Excuse me. Let me rephrase that. That's what it's called. And they had a Groupon special where you would purchase. It was like, I don't know, 10 bucks. I forget how much it was, but you would have, um, you would be stuck in a ice box for about two to three minutes long, something like that. I forget the exact timeline. However, during that time, you would dress up like a Soviet soldier, <laughs> like a former Soviet soldier, uh-huh. and you would just you would chug vodka, and you would chug it in one of those ice shot glasses. Hmm. So we all did it, and we all dressed up like Soviet soldiers, and we went in there, and we all got drunk, and it was a very fun time. And then one of my friends, he gets out, and he's he's in the Soviet, he's in the you know the Soviet garb, and he's like, "Let's go invade the Ukraine!" Oh god! He screams that out loud, and they kicked us out. <laughs> oh, they were like, man. "You got to leave." The guy, there was a guy with an eye patch who came out. And he's like, "You got to go. <laughs> like you have to leave." <laughs> the guy with the the guy with the eye patch was pretty scary too. Did you walk out with the Russian clothes? <laughs> no, we got undressed and we left. There was a bunch of scary Eastern European people. You always <laughs> in those in those circumstances, you don't really stay. <laughs> you, you don't you don't test you don't test the Eastern Europeans. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're the, they're the, they're the scariest of whites. <laughs> by far I'd agree there's with no there's they are the scariest of whites but um i guess the point i'm trying to make though there's a lot of hatred towards towards russia and ukraine by the western part and i think it's for definitely justifiable reasons like i would i would think that way too if if that was the history of my country not saying that that's the most productive way to think i'm just saying it's completely understandable and you know they i definitely have empathy towards that but with the russia ukraine story is that people don't really look at the entire context of the situation and i think the first thing that you really need to look at is nato expansion and what nato was so nato was an organization the primary function of nato was to prevent the soviet union from invading europe after world war ii Mm -hmm. and it gradually just kept on expanding. It just kept on expanding. So in 1952, it, you know, the, there was the original NATO participants, you know, the U.S., U.K., France. But then it just started eventually expanding. And in 52, Greece and Turkey joined. And in 55, West Germany joined. And in 82, um, Spain joined. It's like and a 30-year gap before anything actually happened there, yeah. Yeah, and then Germany, uh, there was a German reunification in, in 1990. Right. And then... But they were technically half in anyway, so... 
they're technically half in, but um, I, I guess the ones that are seen as provocative, really, because um, it makes sense that Germany is going to be in NATO. Like, there's and that NATO's and it's in Central. I mean, excuse me, Germany's in Central Europe, but eventually, and you know, throughout the '90s, NATO just started to expand and expand. And you know, the first expansion that you really need to take note of was in, in is was in 1999 when uh, when, when Czech. The Czech Republic and, and Hungary and, and Poland all joined and and then this is post post um, fall of the Soviet Union. This post Soviet fall of the Union. These are these are former Soviet bloc states. Right. These are former satellite countries. And then in in two thousand nine, you had Bulgaria and Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and so yeah. In two thousand nine, uh, and then Albania and Croatia joined as well. And the Soviets at this time are not. The Soviets prior to that, they made it clear that they were against NATO expansion. However, they were really way too weak to do anything about it. And the NATO countries that were that were the new NATO countries, they weren't on the border of, of Russia. So it was kind of something that they could forgive, but they definitely didn't like it. But in 2008, in the NATO Bucharest summit, um, NATO welcomed Ukraine and Georgia uh, Euro-Atlantic aspirations for membership in NATO. And um, I'll read the quote. NATO welcomed Ukraine and Georgia and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations for memberships in NATO. We agree today that these countries will become members of NATO. And Putin was not very happy about that. And Putin was uh, Putin is a Russian nationalist. And you know, his response was... Uh, that it would be a direct threat to Russia if that were to happen. And this is why there was a war between Russia and Georgia. This is this these are the roots of the war between Russia and Georgia and it didn't really work out that well for Georgia because they got they got stopped. They got, spanked, Ob- yeah. they got obviously mm-hmm. they got stopped. Um they got stopped out. Interestingly enough, this was also like one of the first times that um Russia like actually engaged in a, like a military conflict. Uh, you know, at that scale, I think what they had like a brief stint in, in like Vietnam or some shit, right? And then nothing for a really long time. And so this is when they got to like start playing with all their new toys, you know? Russia has been in plenty of military conflicts. Like major military conflicts? Afghanistan. Oh, true. Forgot about that. That was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan made the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan seem like child's play. Yeah, totally forgot about that. Um, and also in Syria as well. Russia, they they have military conflicts all the time, but <clears throat> they have their own military industrial complex thing going on there. But um, now with like Ukraine and Russia, like like what what are the big reasons between that that were behind a lot of the a lot of the animosity towards towards Russia and towards uh, a lot of the animosity between Ukraine and Russia and what led to the the coup in in Ukraine which we're going to get to which hopefully adds context to the whole thing going on with Joe Biden and, and Hunter Biden and Trump as well um the U the U S or the Western world there there was three things that really provoked Russia into not really being happy that was NATO expansion EU expansion and then the the Western support for the the coup and or or the Orange Revolution 
And you need to go back to 2013, and it, it, that's where it all starts. In November 21st, 2013, um, at this point, President Yanukovych. Yanukovych. It all starts in November. It all really starts in November 21st in 2013, and at this point, President Yanukovych is is negotiating with the EU to form an association agreement that brings the EU and Ukraine much closer together. So not only was NATO expanding, but the EU was expanding as well. And um, it was going to be a step in the direction of incorporating the Ukraine into the Western sphere of influence. And what what ended up happening is that Russia offered Yukunovich a better deal, and, and Yukunovich said, said no to the EU deal. And this spiraled into just a lot of protests by December of 2013. And the protesters actually seized and they seized um, the city hall in, in, in Kiev. And then you started having people who were dying. And, and um, by February, a bunch of people were dying. And what, what ended up happening is that a bunch of European ministers, they headed to Kiev to make a deal to do elections to, re- to remove Yakunovich uh, from power. But these protesters were completely militant, and they really refused to accept accept an election. And basically, they got very uppity. Uh, Yakunovich ended up fleeing on February of uh, February twenty second of two thousand fourteen. And after the coup, Yakunovich fled to Moscow. He was a very pro Russian. He was the very pro Russian Ukrainian president. And um, after the coup. Um, you know, Parliament, they voted to repeal minority languages, uh, basically the Russian language. They repealed, they they voted to repeal the Russian language. And now, after now that, when they voted to repeal the Russian language, is that repealing it as a like official government language? Or is it like how they were criminalized to speak Ukrainian during the Holdemoff? Well, I don't know how they would criminalize speaking Russian since half the country speaks Russian or more than half the country speaks Russian. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure the exact extent of those laws, to be completely honest, uh, whether it be like, you're in jail. Oh, come with me. You'll speak the Russian because that wouldn't be very economical. But removing it from the official language of Ukraine, I think, was what was uh, what was going to be the main outcome. But um after that, that's when Russia started seizing checkpoints in, in Crimea, and it's important that that's when they started voting to to uh, because Crimea, the majority of it is Russian. It was Russian for most of its lifetime. Like Crimea was transferred from Russia to Ukraine during the time of the Soviet Union. It was transferred, I think, in 1954, 53, 54, 53. It was transferred from this Russia to the Soviet to the Ukraine, so I guess they never really anticipated any type of conflict between the two countries because they were both in the same bloc. But it's important to note that the Russians didn't invade Crimea; they were already there because they were leave. They were Russia had been leasing a naval base in Crimea, and I mean, after that, of course, additional forces rolled in, but they were already there, and they had a, <laughs> yeah. and they had, they had already infrastructure in there so of course russia had an interest from in in, in annexing crimea and and there's a lot of geopolitical interest there as well there's gas pipelines there's 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 gas pipelines there's 
it's a it's a gateway to to Asia. It's just Ukraine has been a, a geopolitical battle battlefield for that reason. And also, I mean, prior to it, just because of the agriculture, Ukraine was a huge breadbasket. But it's just it's sad because it's kind of like the Middle East, where it was just a very important political stage, and it was just kind of used by everyone. And including the Soviets, which, you know, they completely sacked and, and disgraced it. But, you know, you got to think of what the U.S.'s core interest is. And the core the core interest of the U.S. is is really to – we can get into this later to, to the core interest because I know we're going to touch this real quick. But Definitely, I yeah. think it's something that – I think something that you have to note with, with the Ukrainians and, and who – the West was actually fostering in this orange revolution. They were, a lot of them were, were fascist types. A lot of them were genuinely neo-Nazis. And I think that just to add that context, the U S was supporting the democratic movement. It's a complete role reversal. You know what I mean? Like you have in 2004, you know, you have in the old age, you have, um, it was the Soviets trying to inspire this permanent revolution around the world and try to convince all these countries to go communist. And now it's the opposite. The U.S. is trying to convince all these countries to have a revolution in the name of democracy. But when that happens, and, and usually when you're trying to foster some type of revolution within a country, the average farmer, the average most of the time, the average farmer, the average gardener, and this is like the words of Barack Obama. I'm paraphrasing him completely. But he basically said, he's like, well, it's kind of foolish to think that, you know, a gardener and a mailman and a, and a tax accountant are going to go and they're going to pick up a gun and they're going to take over the government. So typically when it happens, you have to go to the most aggressive force there. Right. And, and Ukraine, those are the fascists. <laughs> and those were the fascists in Ukraine. And, yeah. And this is like a whole long history in itself. You have to remember that Ukraine was very anti-Soviet Union during World War II just because of, you know, things like the Holodomor, because of very real reasons that a lot of them were pro-Germany during World War II. And, of course, when the Germans did come into Ukraine, they abused them as well. However, there were, there were very prominent Nazi-like figures in Ukraine during World War II. And there are parties that, or there were parties that were supporting, that, that honored the the former Nazis in Ukraine. And I'm going to play a clip right here from, because I can't say it better than Justin Ramondo. This is Justin Ramondo on Scott Horton back in 2014 when this just happened. So I'm going to play this clip and it really gives you context into the, into the, the rebels or the fascists that the U S and, and Europe were supporting. Well, we've been pouring millions of dollars into Ukraine's opposition movement ever since the Orange Revolution. We supported Yushchenko and uh, uh, his his allies. And uh, back in two thousand four. Yes, and it's pretty astonishing what's happening now. I mean, if you look at the character of the Ukrainian opposition. What you see is a motley collection of anti-Semites, neo-Nazis, and out-of-office oligarchs. These are the new freedom fighters. <laughs> All right. Now, 
Come on, who are you, Morris D's or something? You're telling me there's real Nazis involved over there? Well, there actually are real Nazis over there, and they are involved. Um, let's let's look at some of these people. First of all, there's Svoboda, which is called the Freedom Party, but its actual name was originally the Social National Party. Get it? National Socialism, Social National. So, yeah, kind of a little wink-wink there. Um, and uh, their leader, um, whose name I'm going to try and pronounce, um, Ole Tianabak, uh was expelled from the the uh, parliament for for denouncing uh, the uh, pro-Russian uh, 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 you know party of regions, which is uh, you know like Yanukovych's party as a Jewish mafia, quote-unquote. And so he was kicked out of Parliament but went back in, I guess. Um, and what were they doing on New Year's Day? Uh, well, you know, the opposition had a big rally at the Maidan, and uh, they put on a little play, which was called The Zid. Now, what does Zid mean in Ukrainian? Well, I'm not going to even say it over the radio. Yeah, I think everybody understands the context, yeah. Right. I mean, it's an anti-Jewish epithet. And uh, it was all about uh, how Zid um, was a stereotypical Orthodox Jewish wheeler-dealer character. And he explained to the crowd that... uh, his his various occupations included banking, stock market speculation, hosting a TV talk show, and loan sharking. <laughs> and he sang a song uh, in which one of the lines was, uh, let's see if I can recall it, East and West belong to me, our people are everywhere, quote-unquote. Now the play goes on, and of course, the entire leadership of the opposition was sitting in the audience, and they were applauding this, including the people who are now in line to be president of Ukraine and prime minister. And they're now our favored candidates over there, and they were applauding this. And, uh, you know, the play went on... uh, 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 you know, talking about the birth of Jesus and how Zid was collaborating with Herod. And uh, uh, then he decides to join the protesters, and he switches sides, joins the opposition, when he learns that on orders from the king, uh, the, uh, the Yanukovych forces are preparing to kill all Jewish firstborns. So, of course, the message here is that Jews only care about themselves. I mean, it's it's just like a neo-Nazi play. And there were tens of thousands of people sitting around celebrating this. How is this possible? That's what I want to know. I mean, why is no one in the media, which is very sensitive to any kind of ethnic slur, especially here in the West, why are we not hearing about this? 
Yeah. So with with this Fobata, the, these Fobatas, these neo-Nazi types in the government, in parliament, who are very sympathetic to neo-Nazi causes and mm-hmm. who by all means seem incredibly anti-Semitic. Right. Like the description of the Zid. Yeah. I don't the, even feel comfortable saying that word. <laughs> Zid of a talk show host and a Wall Street speculator. Like, what? That was the play. Um, You got to just take a step back and say, yeah, Ukrainian people, it's definitely a very sad history. However, should we be supporting any of what's going on right there should we be should we be why are we taking we should should we be taking one side or another and i'm going to ask you why are we giving military aid cuz cuz a lot of the context with it with this whole thing now is that you know trump withheld was not he didn't withhold it he was threatening to withhold military aid to ukraine um, if they didn't do him a political favor basically so why are we supporting Ukraine in the first place? Why are we lending? Why are we giving them loans or military aid rather to a country that has neo Nazis? Yeah, dude. I mean, um, you put me in an awkward position because I'm not. I'm not in. You know, in favor of supporting Nazis. Um, I don't think that I'm going to answer that question um, just because. And they're not. To be fair, they're not all neo Nazis, right? Of course, they're not all. They're not all neo Nazis. But if you say thirty percent are, that's a lot. (laughs) Like, I I don't. I don't think the majority are are neo Nazis. But there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, Svoboda activists who who had seats in in parliament, and it's they had the their interim defense minister was in was in the party. I have a whole list of them right now, and. I can't pronounce anything well, so I might as well butcher them. But yeah. I'm going to leave the articles from Justin Ramondo, who really covered the story, as well as um, as well as the, mm-hmm. the 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 clip from Scott Horton's show. Sure. Um, but like, why are we? Take us through like what the hell, what the hell is going on here? Why do we support sure. Ukraine? And and again, like I'm I'm gonna not make a judgment on why. Uh, like like the moral reason to support Ukraine, but I am gonna give some history about the the different whys of helping Ukraine, right? Without taking like a side. So as as you kind of pointed out, you know, since the early 1990s, like after the fall of the Soviet Union, like the United States has consistently supplied foreign aid to Ukraine, um, and of course this is partly to foster like pro Western political and and military links. Um, uh, in a country that's bordering Russia, right? So you talked a lot about the NATO expansion, and then that's definitely a big part of it. Uh, but there's some other parts to it too. And so the, I'll, I'll start with kind of the nice part of aiding Ukraine, right? Like kind of the, the benevolent part. Um, and this comes directly from uh, USA.gov uh, on their Ukraine um, section. Well, fake, fake news. <laughs> this is from the government, man. Uh, it was a false flag. Cool. T- take it or leave it, man. <laughs> but this is the quote. So they say, uh, following Ukraine's independence and the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine began began a period of transition towards a market economy and a participatory democracy. 
1992, USAID signed a bilateral agreement on humanitarian, economic, and technical cooperation with Ukraine to help the country develop its economic, political, and societal potential. USAID and the Ukrainian government identified three strategic objectives. One, to create a broad-based market economy. Two, to help build a participatory democratic political system. And three, to assist in social sector reforms to ease the difficulties of the transition, particularly among the most vulnerable members of society. Um, so I'm going to break it down and just give some some like real words for the shit. Um, so a couple things that, that you know, USAID and, and our foreign help, you know, I mean, this is not, this is nothing new. We help lots and lots of countries, right? We give money to like so many countries. Uh, we're, we're fortunate and prosperous enough to do so. Uh, and if you look at it from the frame of reference that we're, that we're benevolent and that we're trying to, you know, help a country that's going through some shit, you know, you can look at some of the things that it's accomplished. Right? So the first part, uh, and I think this will resonate with you, uh, is that we put 1.8 million land titles into the hands of private farmers and created a legal aid network for those landowners. And that's really important, especially when you're talking about, you know, that giant famine, right? Um, this kind of break broke up that problem, right? Uh, that problem of collectivized farming, right? Well, the problem, well, the famine was in the 1930s. Like, they weren't suffering from famines. Yeah, but what they were, the- what, what still was happening is that, cr- like, cronies and things like that were owning all of the land right that's and, actually a really good point you and know? i think we should uh, that's a, a point that th- that's actually really important that you pointed that out that there were cronies that were that were owning that land that's that was a humongous problem after the soviet union collapsed right and, that and they had these fucked up privatization auction like privatization of basically every every sector in the economy right and so what this did was kind of un unworking a lot of that right and and this was to the collective benefit of ukrainians right so now they they can produce food and and in last time i checked i think they're doing pretty well on that front um, another one was uh, that was pretty big, at least at the time, uh, was helping them fight, you know, uh, diseases. Specifically, tuberculosis was really big, um, and HIV/AIDS, um, and also they helped with providing like maternal and infant health. You know, so their um, their infant mortality rates dropped as a result of that. You know, a lot of people weren't getting sick from something that's you know preventable like tuberculosis, uh, and obviously HIV and AIDS is a big problem um, and was at that time. So, you know, helping out another country that's in transition for that is is honorable in that respect. Um, Another thing they did uh, on that uh, kind of business climate is, you know, they worked to help draw foreign investment um, and they did a few things. So they said they reduced uh, a bunch of unnecessary government regulations, you know, Shout out conservatives. They love that shit, right? Um, they supported a pension reform. Uh, they increased uh, the development of the financial sector there. Uh, and also, and this was kind of a big one, they helped improve the energy efficiency of the country um, to reduce that the, the Ukraine's dependency on imported energy resources, which you can take in two different ways, right? Well, on the one hand, that's like positive for people. On the other hand, it's kind of like a slight at Russia because they were getting a lot of their gas and oil uh, from Russia. Uh, but Take it or leave it, you know, it's a net positive for uh, Ukrainian people. And then um, the the last really big thing that USAID has, has helped with was implementing, like, these special initiatives to fight corruption specifically uh, and uh, illegal, like, cross-border trafficking, you know, like human trafficking, that is. You know, so, like, if we're looking at it from, like, the, the you know, uh, uh, non-profit, like, benevolent framework, it seems that 
you know, uh, helping Ukraine, you know, is, is beneficial for the people of Ukraine, right? And you, you, I'm sure there are plenty of uh, uh, folks that disagree and think that we shouldn't, you know, support a bunch of other people. And that's, that's your opinion and you're entitled to it. But at the very least, these are some concrete things that that, um, that, that aid has done that was very positive. Well, it's interesting that you bring those those that all up because all those problems and this is um, probably for another podcast. But when the Soviet Union fell, millions of people starved to death. Um, there was a huge, there was a lot of sex trafficking that was coming out of that was coming out of Eastern Europe. A lot of those Epstein girls were from Eastern Europe. Um, it's just interesting that you point out. Now, I don't know what – I can't tell you the economics of foreign aid and how much it helps and how much it undercuts you know, actual business there or not right now when it comes to Ukraine. Anything I'd be saying would be completely just out of my ass and without any type of like facts or sources to back me up. But, yeah, obviously like when a country is in, is, is in complete chaos – you know, like, what do you what do you do to help stop the suffering that's going on here? But I'm not really talking about the humanitarian aid. I'm talking about the military aid. Sure. And and before we get into the military part, because I definitely want to talk about that, uh, I just want to get into this one other part. And it's, it's it's that it's not just the U.S. that's supporting Ukraine, right? So this is like a, a coalition of nations that have been supporting them. Uh, the EU has, has donated billions. Specifically, Germany has given over $100 million, uh, uh, very recently. Um, even Japan, Japan gave, uh, I think, uh, a sum total of like $3 billion since 1991. Uh, and Japan's like way off, you know, in the Pacific fucking ocean, you know. Uh, but there's like a lot of countries that are contributing to supporting Ukraine for these humanitarian reasons, at the very least, you know. Uh, and I think that's important context, especially when we talk a little bit about the transcript of, of the call, because Trump talks some shit about other countries. We'll get into that later. Um, but I think what's important to note is that it's not just the U.S. that's doing this. You know, we're, it, it's not like a situation where it's like, why does the U.S. have to like be the, you know, uh, the piggy bank of the world or like, you know, whatever. It's a bunch of countries that are doing it. It's not just the U.S. You know, a lot of people have been helping them because they see like real humanitarian issues. Um, take it or leave it. That's the, the facts on the ground. That's that's what's actually going on um, as far as people supporting it, uh, countries supporting it, for, uh, the Ukraine for uh, humanitarian parts. Now, the good one, uh, the, the the military part, and this is like probably the one that can resonate the most with you, Henry, because you know we're all about geopolitics, and obviously the military uh, a portion of this is like the kind of important strategic reason, right? Um, so uh, I got this one for the Military Times. Um, it was an op-ed, um, but it was written really well and had a lot of awesome facts. Um, so uh, the guy quotes here. Uh, we might have to put this in the. Um, in, in the uh, show notes there just so people can read it because I thought it was interesting. Um, this was, I forgot the dude's name. Shit, I should probably say this. Boner Schlan Weichsenham. Jesus Christ. What, they don't like writing the person's name? Jesus, all right. Well, I don't know who the, this guy's name is, all right? So some dude or girl, whatever. Uh, so the quote from the article. It was probably a dude. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the quote from this article says, so for U the Ukrainian military and ultimately for the U.S. and other allies who are dealing with Russian aggression, which there very much is like an ongoing fight in in Ukraine over areas of Ukraine, you know, Ukraine versus Russia. So 
uh, for the Ukrainian military and ultimately for the U.S. and other allies who are dealing with Russian aggression, the bottom line is this. Any delay in arms sales has a del deleterious effect on Ukraine's fight. Another quote. Since 2014, Russian, of, uh, Russian seizure of Crimea and invasion of Ukraine's east, the full spectrum of military, uh, Russia's military doctrine has been on display. That doctrine, often referred to as hybrid warfare, includes, includes the use of conventional forces like mechanized infantry backed by armor and artillery, as well as special operations forces, assassinations, bombings, electronic warfare, cyber attacks, and the weaponization of information. Okay, so that's kind of like the context of what's going on, right? So Russia is engaged in a conflict with Ukraine. We can certainly debate the merits of it and whether or not it's, you know, uh, uh, positive or negative. Um, but the facts on the ground are that they're, they're in a, they're at battle, they're at war, kind of. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing is that the Russian attacks are increasing in frequency and destruction. Um, and a lot of Ukrainians are dying as a result, right? This happens in war, right? Every conflict that we talk about on the show in, in the Middle East, you know, has that, you know, that human casualty, you know, uh, uh, cost. Now, Ukraine has asked the U.S. to provide military supplies to support their fight against the Russians, uh, but the White House has delayed it. And this is kind of getting into, you know, our, our impeachment inquiry a little bit. And what's important is that the U.S. aid package that was held up by Trump uh, included things like sniper rifles, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, counter-artillery radar, you know, electronic warfare detection, um, communication systems, uh, and also like just military medical treatment. You know, it was just super important. And this one piece of tech that I wanted to talk about is that uh, from this article is that Ukraine received 20 of these ANTPQ-53 radar systems. Um, it's radar systems. And what they do is they track incoming mortar and short artillery fire, short range artillery fire. And okay, what the fuck does that mean to any fucking nerd? I get it. Um, well, just put it this way. The casualty rates of units that are equipped with those systems dropped from 47% to about 18%, meaning they were able to detect short range artillery and mortars at a much higher rate, which caused a lot fewer people to die, right? Um, and, you know, George P. Kent is quoted in this article. He's the deputy assistant secretary in the Europe European and Eurasian um, Bureau at the U.S. Department of State. Um, he told uh, the Military Times that uh, the military, or the U.S. military, uh, is paying close attention to how Ukraine fights the Russians. Uh, and he says, I think there's a great opportunity, even as we are helping the Ukrainian military build its own resilience against Russian aggression, for us to learn the from the modern way of Russia doing war in Ukraine. So uh, my kind of take on this uh, from the military perspective, and then I'm, I'd like to invite you to, you know, to talk about it as well, uh, is that after the Soviet Union fell, we and a bunch of other countries uh, clearly just wanted a friendly ally on Russia's border to counter them. Like this is how I'm reading it. Um, and while there's certainly positive benefits to the people of Ukraine in aiding them post-Soviet Union and in that transition, ultimately what I think this boils down to is like a geopolitical strategy to assert like our Western influence in a critical region. Now, whether or not that's right or wrong is like up for debate, like I said before, but the fact remains that we and a bunch of other countries have committed to supporting Ukraine financially and militarily. And I think... You know, what's important about this is that we've specifically appropriated this aid legally and, and frankly, in bipartisan fashion, 
uh, through our like system of government. So a couple bills that have gone through, uh, you know, around 2014, House Resolution 4152, uh, that passed 378 to 34. Uh, House Resolution 4152, excuse me, I said that again, uh, that's 399 to 14. Uh, and then uh, another one here passed 385 to 23. So in three major bills uh, that that we have passed in support of Ukraine, both financially and militarily, it's very bipartisan. You know, uh, a lot of people are just supporting the idea of whether that's countering Russia militarily or just being a humanitarian for Ukraine. No matter way, which way you slice it, that seems like the popular opinion and, and the route that our legislators have decided to go. So what do you think? What, you know, Based on that military portion, what, what's your take on this? Well, I can understand why Ukraine would want a little extra help. <laughs> Everyone could use a little help with, with those important things. And guys, let's talk about getting help i can't read this without laughing <laughs> i need to go back <clears throat> all right i can understand why ukraine wants a little help everyone could be guys i understand why ukraine would want a little extra help everyone could use a little extra help guys let's take a quick moment to talk about sex yes good sex now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up, BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. So you know they work. That's the first time I pronounced Cialis correctly. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready whenever that opportunity arises. Boy, I love Blue Chew. Blue Chew is, um, Blue Chew actually really does help. And pretty much all of my friends that have used Blue Chew, they're all like, oh God, it works really well. <laughs> <laughs> like my friends who listen to the show and they're like, yeah, we got the Blue Chew. And they're like, oh, I'm like, how's Blue Chew? Like, how's Blue Chew treating you? are like, yeah, it, it helps. It's always just kind of like... A little, a, like, a per, like, elbow a little to the of, shoulder, you know? Like, <laughs> it, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> like, Beavis. Like, hey, Beavis. Uh, boobs. <laughs> I just took a Blue Chew. <laughs> hey, Beavis, I just took a Blue Chew. <laughs> Shut up, butthead. <laughs> if you could benefit from that extra function and more confidence where it counts... Blue Chew is a fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Most guys talk a good game, but Blue Chew helps you follow through. Blue Chew is subscribed online and shipped straight to your doctor in a discreet package. So no in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. And telling your doctor that you need Viagra or Cialis is very awkward. I've been there. They're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we got a special deal for our listeners. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code BRO. That's B-R-O. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E Chew.com, promo code BRO, to try it for free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. All right, thank you, Blue Chew. So thanks, Blue Chew. Thank you, Blue Chew. So what was so okay? What was your take on kind of the military support there in Ukraine? 
I don't agree with it whatsoever. I, I don't think that the fact that it's bipartisan, it has bipartisan support, gives it any more justification or moral justification. Yeah, it's the laws that we live with, but U.S. foreign policy over the past, really since World War II, you can argue even before that, has been a complete shit show. It's been terrible. It's been awful. It's caused so many problems. And usually most, most, uh, Bills that support military spending or that are that support militarism in general are, are usually bipartisan. You don't really have one party being the the war party. I mean, I guess the Republicans are more of the war party over the past twenty years, but the Democrats sure as hell have been the war party over the past one hundred years. But most military conflicts and most military military spending and, and support for regime change is usually bipartisan between both parties. And I don't think just because both parties support it makes it right. I think that's more of a indictment on how corrupt and how similar both political parties in the United States are. And I don't think there's really any reason why the U.S. should be supporting Ukraine um, Ukraine as this might sell a little Machiavellian and yeah, the humanitarian thing that comes out of the, the mouth of, 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 uh, us legislators is, is all crocodile, crocodile tears. It's, it's a lot more Machiavellian at, at heart. It all has to do with just having, and, and you mentioned this before, is having a bulwark against Russia in Ukraine. How would you think the U S would react or how did the U.S. react when Russia put bases in Cuba? Jesus Christ, the world almost ended. The world literally almost ended when that happened. I mean, look what happened with when there was uh, Russia was giving aid to the Sandinista government in Nicaragua in the 80s. The U.S. literally, the U.S. literally funded the Contras who were insane drug dealing terrorists yeah to, to overthrow <laughs> that government yeah. insane vicious drug dealing terrorist and they how they funded them was through illegal arms sales to Iran and by selling cocaine they fund that's how they funded the, the Nicaraguans that's how they funded them they they funded the contras by selling cocaine and then illegal arms sales to Iran during the Iran Iraq war. How that like that's that that's U.S. foreign policy. It's it's fucked up. And then it's also pretty bipartisan. It's all well that wasn't bipartisan. That was the Reagan administration, like the secret, CIA. Right. <laughs> that was a secret thing because Congress was like, Ooh. all right, I'll give Congress a little justification. Like if you go to Congress and say, hey, this money is to fund Al Qaeda or fund the Contras, they're going to be like, okay, we're not doing that. Right. But they'll find other ways to do it. Right. I mean, right. Listen, there was something called a Monroe Doctrine. One more last point. There okay. was something called the Monroe Doctrine in the U.S. history that basically said that the Western Hemisphere is the U.S. influence. Like, we run this country. We have final say in everything that goes on there. Sure. Now, how do you think Russia feels that we are getting all cozy and giving missiles and weapons to something, a country that's right on their border? And when the U.S. starts preaching democracy, oh, let's let's get democracy in these countries. Democracy, democracy is the best thing in the world, which is which, which you can argue that it's not the best thing in the world. 
based on how many democratic countries have completely failed and have disgusting dictators and corrupt leaders who just sell away all the resources of their countries. Those are democracies. Just go look in Africa and all those democracies where they're like where they where the leader the elected leaders just sell away the country completely. It's just majority rules at the end of the day. It's such a mantra to give democracy to every single country in the world, but like, I don't even know if there's figures that even prove that democracy is the best form of government. But besides that, what do you think the reaction of Russia is if we're going to be parking and sending military aims to a regime that's anti-Russia right next to the doorstep? They're going to not like that. And what they're going to do is that they're going to destroy the country or they're maybe not militarily, but they're going to do it by other means. And and Russia does have a lot of leverage, not only over Ukraine, but they have a lot of leverage over the over the rest of Europe with with their energy. They supply 80 percent of the energy to Europe. They have the ability. They have major leverage over the EU. They have major leverage over Ukraine. Ukraine is in concrete. There's a a complete economic energy and political crisis in Ukraine has been going on for many years. And Russia has the ability to turn the gas off, which they showed that they did. Now, why it sounds like you're just going to put through Ukraine through more hardship by promising to back them and then or, or promising to back. Hey, look at the Kurds. We promised to back them. We never really went all the way That's with that one, did we? <laughs> but it just sounds like it is going is a recipe for disaster in the long run. Um, I don't think this is going to work out. Ukraine, if anything, should be a neutral zone. The U.S. and Russia should be cooperating with each other on these types of things. When the U.S. and Russia cooperate on geopolitical on, on geopolitical, um, you know, on geopolitical interventions or geopolitical uh, plans or or whatever, usually those are probably the best outcomes for the people who are involved. Um, not having this, we hate them, they hate us type of thing going on. Both countries are nuclearly armed. If there was a war between the U.S. and Russia, it would not just be foods on the ground. It would be a it would be a proxy war, like what you're seeing in Ukraine. A war between the U.S. and Russia is the end of human civilization. Both countries can blow the world up. Um, but both countries can blow the world up to smithereens. They can just both they can destroy New York City. We could destroy Moscow. Why are you going to play with fire like that? Let them have their sphere of influence and leave them alone. Yeah, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think one one point that I want to just come back to is that the reason why I'm bringing up, you know, the bipartisan, um, you know, kind of support of supporting Ukraine isn't to make an argument that it is just to support Ukraine. You know, you bring up a lot of really good points. Um, why I bring that up is because we have this call. Right. And the, the reason for the um, for the impeachment inquiry. And it's important to note that both sides of the aisle supported this, allocated and appropriated this funding and made that this is the thing that we're doing. Right. Um, and all of those people are elected by the people of the United States and the money that they're appropriating comes from the people of the United States. And it begs the question, is it okay for the president to hold this up, hold up this aid for anything, for any reason um, that has to do with his own personal benefit, right? And that's kind of the question that's surrounding this 
quote, perfect call. And I want to take some time to just go through this because, frankly, I think, you know, if you're watching the mainstream media, a lot of, you know, we're not, they're not reviewing the transcripts, they're taking the excerpts out, you know, and frankly, you know, a lot of the talking points on the other side, on the Republican side, don't really mention the transcript itself. So I want to take this opportunity to like, let's actually read it and and talk about it. Show us the transcripts, Hillary. <laughs> Show us the transcripts. <laughs> exactly. You know, so the first thing I want to say is that this transcript, by the way, is not a transcript. It's it's definitely not word for word. It literally says it right at the right at the front. You know what's funny about this? Like if you if you just type in into Google like you know, transcript of, you know, Ukraine call or whatever. The first thing that pops up is from the White House, and it literally says transcript with like three exclamation points. And, you know, Trump definitely had a hand in, in saying that. But what's funny is that it's literally not a transcript. So it says right at the top, it says, caution, a memorandum of the telephone conversation, telcon, uh, is not a verbatim transcript of a discussion. The text in this document records uh, the notes and recollections of situation room duty of officers and NSC policy staff assigned to listen to and memorialize the conversation in written form as the conversation takes place. A number of factors can affect the accuracy of the record, including poor telecommunication connections, variations in accent or interpretation. The word, quote, inaudible is used to indicate portions of conversation that the note taker was unable to hear. Now, the first thing I want to say about this is like, I, I work for a tech company. We have fucking software that does this shit. You know, it's crazy to me that the U.S. is in, just like automatically transcribing it. Or like, honestly, why aren't they just recording it and then going back and having people just type that shit? A little crazy. Well, on a phone, <laughs> on, a, on an audio phone. Are you, you're, you're telling me that the United States of America, the most prosperous nation on the planet, can't figure out how to record a phone call and transcribe it? That's crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they can. I'm sure they can. But I mean, you ever listen to your closed captions or look at your closed captions rather when. Dude, I mean, we're talking about a different scope. The, 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 fo- the, football, the, the coach of LSU has a the football team has he sound. You ever see the water boy? Yeah. Yeah, of course. You know, the coach that's like. <laughs> yeah, you know, he has that real deep Cajun. Uh-huh. The, the the coach of LSU right now has that voice. Mm-hmm. He he sounds like he, he's that guy, <laughs> and so they can't pick sounds, him up on the. Uh... So he's just like, <laughs> well, you know, offense was good, but they nothing. Go Tigers! And then they they have the closed captions on, and they show what they think it said, and it's always like. Like Taliban eat my shorts. Like it's not he's not saying that, but it's just <laughs> yeah. always something ri- like ridiculous because he's so um, incomprehensible. You can't, really right? you can't really understand what he's saying, right? And it's pretty hard to transcribe everything, right? Especially on audio, because how do you how do you trans? I I don't I'm not a tech man, you know. At, at the, well, so I have software that we use that literally transcribes the call and like fucking assigns who was speaking and like it gets a pretty damn but good. they weren't they obviously weren't recording the call i i highly doubt that they weren't recording the call you don't think they were recording no the call? i highly doubt that they weren't I, they probably were is what i'm saying like why wouldn't oh. they record the call because if they're not recording the call fucking ukraine definitely is you know like let's be real that we're not talking about like you know college football games and like whether or not the the this the closed captioning makes sense we're talking about like a conversation between two heads of state of of major nations, you know. So like that, that's crazy. That that that's my like side like annoyance. 
has nothing to do with it though. Uh, but one thing I will say about that is that I argue that this, the fact that this isn't a, where do those recordings go? Just another side note, like all some, those recordings between heads of states, like where do they go? Some fucking classified server or some shit. I don't know. Who, I want to hear them all. I want to hear. <laughs> um, so what, what I'm saying is that I think that the fact that this is um, not a word for word transcript is both an argument for and against the impeachment increase. So I'll start with the against. So the mainstream media is, is basically hinging this debate on impeachment around like a non word for word transcript, which is fucking dangerous. Like a lot of context could be lost and it forces us to rely on additional testimony from parties that were involved in the call or in the situation room or in the situations leading up to the call. And so, so what it turns into is like this buttoned up, he said, she said, and it can totally backfire, I think, on Democrats if the facts are not really straight um, or turn up inconclusive. Uh, and ultimately, there's going to be politically motivated testimony on both sides, right? Uh, which I think is why Republicans are so strung up over the process of this all. And and honestly, it, we'll talk about the process in a moment. But my argument for like why why it's you know this not word for word transcript is for the um, uh, uh, the impeachment inquiry is that what we read and what we're about to read um, in the transcript I think reveals. Uh, some interesting stuff and it's it's i think grounds enough to at least ask some questions to get the story straight and that is literally the impeachment inquiry right it's asking the questions to get the story straight and the shit that we're gonna find out you know it's you know missing pieces of it uh, we got these ellipses you know the dot 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 uh that are in this transcript uh, the class the immediate classification of the document after the whistleblower uh came out uh, is questionable. Uh, and honestly, the general aversion to make the call public at first, uh, even though it was this perfect call, I think raises enough suspicion to want to dig deeper. Uh, and I think that the partisan reactions by Republicans and frankly, the president um, at large is, you know, well, you know, as well as like the shifting arguments in defense of the president draw some really early hypotheses that something bad happened, right? If this was truly a perfect call, it would have been made available, you know, it, they would have been totally fine with an impeachment inquiry because they would have found nothing wrong, you know, and, and frankly, things wouldn't have been intentionally left out as is alleged. So let's stop talking uh, for a minute. I'm, I'm going to try to try my best to, to just go off what is actually in the transcript. So let's talk about it. So this first section that I want to talk about, it has a lot to do with something called CrowdStrike and Russiagate. So the call, you know, starts off basically with um, Trump congratulating Zaleski on winning, you know, on his party winning the parliament in Ukraine, right? Uh, and uh, Trump says in this one part, he says, I will say that we do a lot for Ukraine. Uh, we spend a lot of effort and a lot of time, much more than the European unions are doing and they should be helping you more than they are. Germany does almost nothing for you. All they do is talk, and I think it's something that you should really ask them about. Dot, dot, dot. This is important, the dot, dot, dots. Uh, a lot of the European countries are the same way, so I think it's something you want to look at. But the United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. I wouldn't say that it's been reciprocal necessarily, because things are happening that are not good, but the United States has been very, very good to Ukraine. Dude, it's super hard to read Trump's actual words because <laughs> he speaks like an idiot. Um, so, okay, 
Let's unpack this. Yeah, but you said it yourself. Those aren't his actual words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So either they're fucking it up on the transcript, or like I don't know. That sounds a lot like. It probably sounded more retarded. It was like <laughs> they you know, cleaned it up. <laughs> we do a lot for we, we, we you know we do a lot for Ukraine. But what, what, what has Ukraine done for them? U.S. <laughs> right. So the so first thing I want to point out is that um, it's it's incorrect or at least inaccurate that. Um, Europeans aren't doing anything for them, and specifically that Germany does almost nothing for them. So the European Union and its financial institutions provided like something like $16.5 billion in grants and loans to reform the processes um, in the Ukraine. Uh, in addition to those EU funds, Germany specifically pledged millions of dollars in assistance, and so has Britain and Japan, as I mentioned before. You know, they gave $3.1 billion since 1990, right? So the, the idea that, you know, only the United States has been helping you is is not true. But this, in my opinion, is, you know, the setup for this alleged quid pro quo. This is sales, man. You and I were both in sales, still am, you know. He, what he's doing here is he's establishing the value of the U.S. and Ukrainian partnership. And he's differentiating it from the support of other nations. He's saying, you know, I we help you. This is a positive benefit. Keep doing business with us. Right. And then he, he, he differentiates it from like the support of other countries by saying like, those other countries don't do shit for you. Like we got you. This, this relationship is like really positive. Right. So he's establishing that value. Uh, and then he teases the ask, um, you know, the, the, the quo part of the quid, um, by the way, if you don't speak Latin, quid pro quo means this for that, right? It's a transactional statement. Um, so he says specifically that I wouldn't say that it's reciprocal necessarily because things are happening that are not good. And so presumably, uh, you know, he's alluding to, you know, these allegations that Ukraine or elements of, you know, in Ukraine had something to do with this Russia gate, right? And the, the, uh, I know that I'm reading into it a bit, but like it, it's supported by stuff that that continues. And I'll get to that in just one moment to so put a pin in it. Anyway, so it, Zelensky immediately agrees with Trump and he continues and he says, I would like to thank you for your great support in the area of defense. We're ready to cooperate for next steps. Specifically, we are almost ready to buy more javelins from the United States for defense purposes. So here, Zelensky is like... Explain what a javelin is real quick. Javelins are dope. Javelins are shoulder-mounted anti-air missiles, right? So like you can run around and, you know, you see a fucking plane in the sky and you're like, ha, I'm going to shoot you. Or you can also use it uh, against land targets and, and a bunch of other things. It's basically like an RPG, but with like homing missile, you know, they're super awesome. If you've ever played Call of Duty, you can play like a stinger missile. E exactly. Right. But, um, but like really, really advanced shit. It's super cool. Uh, so, and, and as I pointed out to you, uh, before, like, you know, the military stuff that we give to, you know, Ukraine really, really helps them and, 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 you know, reduces the loss of life on their side there. So, um, where was I? Ah, so he says, I'm going to, I'd like to, we're almost ready to buy more javelins. So I think Zelensky here is bringing up the part uh, of our military relationship. And, you know, as described above, you know, the, the weapons that, you know, are given to and purchased by the Ukraine really help them out. Um, and I think Zelensky's willingness to comply with, quote, next steps shows the position that he's in with the U.S. And specifically with Trump. He needs our help. And I think, you know, he's willing to play ball. At least that's what it sounds like on this call. 
Of course they need their help. Do you know how bad the economic situation is in Ukraine? Right. I mean, my friend was in Ukraine recently and he got back and he was like, yeah, I was in Kiev and I got like a five star. I was in like a five star restaurant and I paid like $30 American dollars for the a meal that would probably cost about $500. I had bottles of wine. I had like four courses. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever experienced in my life. Right. And and that's important, you know, because, you know, like like you mentioned that your friends experience, you know, they're in a precarious situation and they're grasping for straws here, right? They can use as much help as they can get. And I think Trump knows this. And I think he set it up in this in the sense of saying this hasn't been reciprocal. And this is where he, you know, kind of jumps into the ass because literally right after Zelensky finishes talking, instead of talking about like javelin missiles or any any other, you know, uh, uh, topics, he says immediately, I would um, I would like for you to do a favor for us, though, because our country has been through a lot and Ukraine knows a lot about it. I would like for you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say crowd strike dot dot dot. We don't know what happened there. Uh, I guess you have one of your wealthy people, dot, dot, dot. The server, they say Ukraine has it. There are a lot of things that went on, the whole situation. I think you're surrounding yourself with some of the same people. I would like to have the attorney general call you or your people, and I would like you to get the bottom of it. Okay, it's kind of like confusing. I know, Trump speaks in strange patterns. But uh, so again, this is not, <laughs> not a, a word for a transcript, but I mean, like, just listen to him speak at all. It sounds totally like what he said. Um, all right. So he, he mentions CrowdStrike here. This is the first thing that he's talking about in terms of this corruption, because a lot of the uh, um, the early defense of Trump in this call was that, you know, oh, he was talking about corruption, corruption. Right. OK, so what's CrowdStrike? All right. So CrowdStrike is a cybersecurity software company, right? They sell to big corporations, government clients, you know, global banks, healthcare, energy companies, you name it. You know, some of their big um, uh, customers like Goldman Sachs, Amazon Web Services, MIT, a bunch of states and cities actually use their services. Um, and the company actually helps run cybersecurity investigations for the U.S. government. Um, the one really big example was uh, they actually tracked North Korean hackers for like a decade, uh, and they were tasked with handling, you know, and tracking the hacking groups that that carried out that um, hack on Sony. Remember in 2014 when uh, when they hacked Sony? No, I don't remember. Oh, dude, this is, what happened? This is fucking awesome. So like, oh, I forget the name of the movie, but it was like James Franco and like, um, uh, 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 what's that other guy? The, the, the fat one, Seth Rogen? Seth, yeah, Seth right? Rogen. And they did this, they were making this movie and it was by Sony. And it was like, uh, uh, I want to, it's not The Dictator, that's Sasha Baron Cohen. It was... Um, the interview. The interview. Thank you. That movie is hilarious, by the way. Uh, and, you know, North Korea, Kim Jong-un, they were like, fuck you guys. Don't release that. Like, we'll we'll get you if you do. Right. And they did. They they ended up um, hacking Sony Pictures and like got all their emails, like got a bunch of their, you know, uh, uh, names and stuff like that. And like they doxed them and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, CrowdStrike was actually involved in, in like figuring out, oh, OK, that was that was them. Right. Like they figured it out. It was definitely the North Koreans. Um, 
but they've been doing pretty well for themselves since uh, they're, they're they went publicly pu public recently you know they ipo'd and they're valued at like 14 billion dollars uh, but that doesn't put them you know above scrutiny of course it's just context um, so CrowdStrike, uh, I think, most recently gained notoriety uh, in 2016 when the DNC uh, paid them to investigate a hack of its server, uh, which which CrowdStrike determined came from Russia, right? And they were the first uh, people to publicly sound the alarm that Russia's Russia was interfering with the 2016 election and that they had hacked the DNC, uh, and this was their assessment, right? But that assessment was actually confirmed later by the U.S. intelligence agencies, like those 17 that uh, Trump doesn't believe, right? And, you know, in a footnote to uh, a whistleblower complaint, he says, like, I don't know why the president uh, associate President Trump, that is, I don't know why President Trump associates these servers with Ukraine, um, because the whistleblower had added that, you know, um, Trump had previously connected the DNC server hack to Ukraine in, like, 2017 and, like, television interview right so there's like this conspiracy theory that actually you know it wasn't russia who hacked them it was like people in ukraine who hacked them and so that's why there's no collusion or something like that i can't really get that story straight because it's super weird but the point is though um that these conspiracy theories have been circulating around about crowdstrike and how it handled the investigations and just to lend a little bit of credence there um so one theory talks about how the FBI, you know, when they were looking at this hack, when they were investigating it, they took a look at CrowdStrike's servers there. Um, but it wasn't like a like the actual server. They didn't pick it up and bring it to their FBI office. It was like an image server, like a copy. Right. Take a photocopy of it and give it to us and we'll and we'll take a look. And this is in 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 a, yeah, opposed to like actually physically taking the servers themselves. And and why that's important. Um, well, you know, because, you know, I, I mean, I think. You know, from the FBI and from Comey, he says that this is literally, you know, Comey testified in 2017 that this is what we do. You know, this is like the guidance on how we um, investigate cybercrime. Why? Because it's faster and it doesn't require us to take your servers and like stop your <laughs> like they would be stopping the operations of a 14 billion dollar company while they look into this hack. And that could take months or years. I mean, fucking the the the. Um, the Mueller investigation took like two years. Can you imagine like the CrowdStrike not having access to their own servers for two years? That's insane. So they got a copy, but Comey testified that it that it was probably it would have been better if they got the servers themselves, but they were able to get the information that they needed through that copy. Now, I mean, there's there's some false allegations going around about CrowdStrike as well, and this one's probably the funniest. Uh, there's an allegation that the CTO, um, like the one of the f uh, founders of, of CrowdStrike, um, is actually Ukrainian. So in 2017, I mentioned this before, uh, Trump said on an interview, he said, quote, I heard it's owned by a very rich Ukrainian. That's what I heard, right? Uh, and what I think is really funny about this is that, you know, the, the CTO of CrowdStrike is actually Russian. He was born in Russia, um, you know, moved to the U.S. like three or something like that. And... Uh, you know, so the guy's Russian and the company said Russia did it. <laughs> so, you know, it's there's not like a conflict of interest there. <laughs> um, you know, if anything, it would be like ironic. Like, why would he say Russia did it if he's Russian? Just you because <laughs> someone's Russian doesn't mean that there's that they're pro Putin. There's 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 many, many, many anti Russians, touche, anti Putin Russians, touche, just like there's many anti, you know, there's MEK, there's many anti 
Ayatollah Iranians. There's many anti-Syrians Assad. I hear you. I hear so you, man. That, but that but means what's nothing. what's There's important? Really opposition. No, I, I totally hear you, and, and, th- and that's a good point. But what's important about this is that the the um, allegation that the CTO of CrowdStrike is Ukrainian is supposed to say that it wasn't the Russians that did it; it was the Ukrainians and. Uh, the CTO said it was Russia because he's actually Ukrainian and he doesn't want you to know that it was Ukrainian. Like that's the that's the conspiracy, you know, uh, that somehow he was like trying to cover it up or some shit and blame Russia instead, you know. So, you know, take it or leave it. It's a weird fucking conspiracy theory. I, I'm, my take on this is that, you know, Trump references, you know, the issue of corruption here, uh, which is a big um, argument in support of him and you know, of this call being legit. But I think he based his understanding on the situation of CrowdStrike incorrectly, right? He's basically barking up the wrong tree. He's not referencing, you know, other very major issues of corruption in Ukraine, like very important ones, uh, like cronyism and, you know, uh, money laundering, things like that. He's talking about this one specific CrowdStrike conspiracy theory, right? And if there is a quid pro quo going on here. I think he's at best wasting Zelensky's time to dig into a conspiracy theory, you know, kind of like how he wasted his time trying to prove that Obama is like a secret Kenyan Muslim. Um, But at worst, I think he's extorting Ukraine with congressionally appropriated taxpayer money to disprove that Russiagate was a thing, was real, and that would ultimately help him win an election. And I think these are the two talking points there. Um, now I say this because, you know, there's, there's no way in hell that Trump is going to publicly announce that he got information from Ukraine, from Zelensky, that says that CrowdStrike and 17 intelligence agencies were correct and that the hack actually did come from Russia. Like, he's not going to go out and say that. Like, yes, Russia actually did hack the election. He's been, I mean, he was in, uh, Helsinki saying like, oh, Putin told me it didn't happen, so like I guess it didn't happen, right? Russiagate is a hoax, whatever, right? Like if he if he actually if Zelensky pulled through and said, hey, yeah, we looked into it, and actually, yeah, Russia did it, <laughs> you know, um, he's not gonna he's not gonna say that out loud. It wouldn't it would hurt him, but he sure as hell would scream from the fucking mountaintops if he got even like a shred of evidence that it wasn't Russia. Why? Because that would help him. That would help his narrative, right? One, one last thing on this. Um, so he, he says, uh, Trump said, I will ask him, and he's referring to Giuliani, uh, to call you uh, with the attorney general. Rudy is a, Rudy, <laughs> I can't even, Rudy very much knows what's happening and he is a very capable guy. If you speak to him, that would be great. So Giuliani doesn't know shit. Like this guy is the one that's peddling this weird crowd strike nonsense, right? He's his personal lawyer. He isn't an appointed or elected official. Like, why the fuck is this guy involved? He's a partisan hack. You know, he's fucking crazy. And I don't think he has any business messing around in foreign policy. But the point, though, is like he's saying Rudy knows very much what's happening right now with this situation. And Rudy's been on on TV talking about how CrowdStrike, you know, is is a phony you know, thing and that it's actually a Ukrainian guy and they're, they're lying about Russiagate. Like it's all, there's no substance to that. It's just a conspiracy theory. And Trump is trying to get, get Zelensky to talk about this conspiracy theory, you know? 
Uh, what's your take on this, man? Who hired CrowdStrike? The DNC hired CrowdStrike. Isn't that compromised if the DNC is hiring a third-party vendor to investigate it, something that's political in nature? Why wouldn't the FBI just do the investigation? They did. Why do they hire? So a lot of why so the, remember you, you might have um you know missed the part where I said that you know lots of people hire third party com- companies. I mean you know if we want to get libertarian about it, you know the government's not going to be able to do a better job at than the free market, right? Like this is their gig, right? They sell to giant companies. They they help the United States literally actively on you know finding out about the the North Korean hackers in 2014 to Sony Pictures, you know, they sell to cities and states in the United States. Like, this isn't unusual. That's not unusual. That's normal. Normal for people to hire a company to do it. So my response is you laid out a pretty interesting take, and I appreciate you explaining everything to me because... I'm I'm behind on RussiaGate. I honestly did not follow RussiaGate at all. Well, I, I followed it a little bit, but I haven't really been tuning into like the RussiaGate debates or arguments. So, and I appreciate you filling me in. Something doesn't smell right to me <laughs> in in this call or in your in your studio right now. <laughs> um, both. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I don't know. I'm just they. The whole thing with me with Russiagate is that I just it's going to take a while for me to be convinced one way or another of of some conclusion about if the DNC was hacked or not. I'm honestly still convinced that Seth Rich um, is the one that leaked all that information to WikiLeaks and he was murdered. That's where I'm at. I mean, that in, you're that, taking you're taking someone who 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 thinks that Seth Rich was murdered. All right, man. I like. I'm not gonna go there. It that that is a conspiracy <laughs> theory. That you know, it's a conspiracy you know, theory. But th- what I'm saying is that facts on the ground are theories is, is, are real. Some of them are, yeah. But what what we know to be true is that CrowdStrike, who is known to do a good job at this shit, said it was Russia. They did their job, and then the FBI said it was Russia, and then 16 other intelligence agencies said it was Russia using this information. So, you know, could it be that this is all a fucking hoax and there, you know, there's some tomfoolery going on? Like, maybe, but, like, I'm trying to use Occam's razor here, man. Like, a lot of stars have to align for this to be wrong. Like, you're fighting an uphill battle with the facts, you know? Well, you know, you know so much more than me on this subject that I can't like even have a debate with you on it. Fair enough. It just it would be, it'd be unfair. <laughs> it, it would just be you kind of knowing more than me. <laughs> like that's that's really it. So I can't really um, res- respond to you. I'm sure people who are listening right now are probably like Henry. Say that thing and that other Henry, you idiot. <laughs> 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 but um no i can't well let's talk about something that, that you i think you might know a little bit more about because uh, the second part of this call talks about um some more corruption and specifically hunter fucking biden right so you know a little bit more about this one i mean i don't really know that much about hunter biden either 
see, I have been, I'll just be completely honest, I've said this a million times, the whole Russiagate, Ukraine gate, everything gate, all the, investiga- <laughs> all, all the investigations into Trump and on all the impeachment stuff and all the really just kind of vicious partisan fighting between people has like turned me off so much in, in politics over the past couple of years. Like I cannot stand watching any mainstream news outlet and just hear every single story about Trump, every single story. And it's both sides. I'm not just sure. I'm not just saying like this as as a right leaning guy, right? It's it's coming from both know. sides. Right? I don't even know, and I'll get into that. I don't even know if I'm right leaning anymore. I just consider myself libertarian at this point. I I I might have to. There's there's some things going on in the conservative movement that I'm not very happy about, and um, I'm kind of throwing away a lot of my 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 badges that I wore before. However, the political hatred between people has really turned me off and I've always just thought as the Russiagate thing is something that was a main contributor to that Mm -hmm. so I really just haven't been interested to be completely honest in Russiagate I haven't been interested in a lot of like these these charges on Trump the things that I have been interested in are what I see to be really really bad and immoral decisions that were made by Trump and the one that I think that you know the the main one that I highlight is his veto on the War Powers Resolution Act right and that and that was the thing that I wanted to be laser focused on while we were doing this podcast because I mean there's fucking genocide going on in Yemen right now and people don't give a shit because they're brown people like those are the things that I've, I've tried to focus on more so Middle Eastern politics and and just kind of just screwed up foreign policy that is bipartisan where both the Republican and the Democrat could both agree, listen to it and be like, oh yeah, that's, that's, um, that's right. Not so much on like the, the, uh, political infighting between Republicans and Democrats. I've just, I'm just not that interested in that. I'm not that interested in being part of a political team or anything like that, either right leaning or left wing left-leaning i just i'm just not interested i'm hope i hope that everyone is um i hope more people are like that and i mean obviously i mean i could definitely come from a right lean like a right leaning background however i've definitely become a lot more libertarian as the years gone by i've read people i know i started reading guys like rothbard and reading you know, Thomas Sowell is what really got me into like that. He's not a libertarian. He's more of a conservative, but he he transitioned me into libertarian thought. But I've definitely transitioned more into that as far as economic policy and non-aggression, which is, I think, the, the non-aggression principle is the main principle I kind of, you know, will die on the hill for. However, um, I mean, I lost my fucking point just going into my own political, like the evolution of politics right now. For but sure. I'm just not. I'm just not that interested in in like the squabbling between Republicans and Democrats. And I need to listen to this podcast again to to hear. <laughs> or that. We're, we're not even done yet. We've got a bunch more to cover, and I think this is important. You know, because you know the the question here 
you know, I know that you like to focus on, you know, the foreign policy aspect, and I, and I totally agree with you on that point. You know, him videoing that that bill it was just egregious. Um, but you know, we're we're talking about right now like a big moment in you know politics, and to ignore this, I think, has major implications in foreign policy as well. You know, because we're talking about the guy that that. You know the 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 office that dictates the foreign policy. You know, so the question comes up: like, is he is he doing wrong in his job? And if he is, it's possible that he could get removed from that job. And there are wide implications on a global scale if that happens, right? And so that that's why I think it's important for you to follow this and pay attention to it. But here's the thing: is that I don't agree that we should be giving aid to really any country. And we'll, and, so and, and I don't that's believe, fine. I don't, so, Dude, that's, so, so that's totally you're asking fine. me, that's, you're asking me to defend and, and, and I'm not, condemn Trump over. I'm not asking you to, to, to defend or condemn Trump. What, no, what no, I'm, but I'm, no, I'm not saying you're asking me to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that you're asking me to judge Trump within the, the paradigm of him, you know, breaking rules, the, breaking the rules of holding aid over somebody's head i'm not i'm not even i'm not even asking you to do that what i'm asking you is to you know learn a little bit about what's going on right now because the implication like whether or not you agree you know that ukraine should get um aid whether or not you agree that it's right for us to have an impeachment inquiry is irrelevant what is important in my opinion is that this is happening right now right and if it's found that he did some wrongdoing and he is impeached. He could be removed from office and that has giant implications on everything that you that you would agree is important. Yeah, but he's most likely not going to be impeached. Well, or, well he'll be impeached, yeah, that's, but that's your, he won't be removed from office. That's, that's fine. But this this is still important, you know, because it ha because then it has implications for the election. Right. And then we're talking about, all right, does this help or hurt him for the next election? And if it helps him, how does that translate into his foreign policy? If it hurts him and we get a Democrat in office, what does that mean for our foreign policy and, and for our endless wars and intervention? This is it's all interconnected. And I think ignore like not I'm not saying that you're ignoring it. I understand where you're coming from. You're turned off by the political infighting, but it's important to know what the fuck is going on and to be informed about it, because if you're not like that's just turning a blind eye to something that's going to have big implications. Right. And I think that's super important. And let's let's just move on for a second, because I know we well, we've I can tell you what's going to happen. U.S. foreign policy is not going to change no matter who's president. That's really the status quo. Like the, the foreign policy between Barack Obama and, and Donald well, the foreign policy between Bush, Barack Obama and Donald Trump is not very much different from one another. You can make there's some cosmetic things that are different. You, you can make you can make that argument, man. But you know, it's not just the U.S., right? It's also like our relationships with other countries. You know, so it's, our relationships it's not just aren't us. that much different with with other countries. Let's let's not go down that rabbit hole just there, yet. There, we'll, there, we'll talk. We'll talk more about. We'll debate US foreign on policy that in a moment. Is not we we U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, the Trump, the, the, the White House pulls the trigger on things. And if you get a really bad White House and if you get a cancer in the White House, you know, like with, with, with George Bush, the cancer was in the, the, the Pentagon with the Office of Special Plans and then the, the Office of the Vice President. And, and Obama, the, the cancer was in the State Department. 
Uh, with Trump, it's, I mean, there seems to be a lot of places. You got rid of John Bolton, which was really bad, but, I mean, they're still making some some pretty bad foreign policy decisions. So, Man, no, I, they all I, suck. I can't agree with you more. Um, let's do this. Uh, we're at an hour and 45 minutes or so. Uh, let's stop here for a bit. Uh, we can pick this up in a future episode. We'll talk a little bit more about Hunter Biden, that last part of the transcript. And we can even talk a little bit about the actual impeachment inquiry itself, uh, who was uh, subpoenaed, what do they say, did they show up? Uh, and then maybe we'll have a little bit more of a debate uh, on you know the merits of the inquiry itself. Uh, but for now, uh, let's, let's cut this short. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, like, review, subscribe, do all the stuff. Good eye on your own supply. Peace. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.